wonderful singing this morning. You may be seated. Well, good singing indeed this morning. I would echo or agree with what Zach said of Psalm 38, but the truth of the matter is, the psalmist in writing that psalm for us to sing is writing for us to understand just what God has done for us, just how gracious and how good and how wonderful God is for us. So good singing this morning, especially on one that was new to you. It was a joy to hear you singing. It's a good thing for us to be back. Jessica and I enjoyed being away. It was a refreshing time. Many of you have asked how our time away and our vacation was. It was great, and it's even better to be back home. It's good to be back home and be back in the work and uh, the busyness of life, the things that God has called us to. Numbers chapter 20 is where we are. We're finishing the last message in the series of Walking with God on Moses. We have covered several Bible characters to this point. This will be our last one this year. Uh, Next week, Brother Russ Turner will be preaching. And as I said to the early hour, we are having one 1045 a.m. service next week. So get here early. Now, I will give you a heads up. They come to church at 9 a.m. So they're probably used to getting here before you. But if you want your good seat... You know, everybody has their seat in church. Isn't that how it is? Right? Everybody's got... I have my seat in church. Every Sunday, I got the same seat. It hasn't changed in low these 15 years since I started the church. But uh, you come, and if somebody's in your seat, you be kind and you be gracious and you sit next to them and the whole time stare at them like, hey, buddy, you're in my seat. But uh, this will be the last time this year that we do that. Uh, the morning, the early service and the, and the second service combined. Really, we probably have enough room in here and then the overflow to the lobby. The issue for us has always been here at the church is the parking. With a septic field out front, you really can't park anybody out on the grass lest they sink uh, in the quagmire. And so uh, we, we've just got to park in spots. So maybe the request is if you're used to driving two, three, or five cars to church, maybe just one next week. That will help uh, the most uh, in the process there. Uh, and then I also uh, should say thank you to the navigators. Each of the life stages has been going out. Navigators did a great job yesterday. Uh, Keith, what do you say? We were close to a thousand, is that right? We're about a thousand door hangers that we hung out uh, in uh, North Lexington. And so thank you for those that came. Uh, it was so bad and so long, we left Brian and Stacy just walking. I don't know where you guys were at some point. I asked Dad, I said, should we go check on him? He's like, I just call him. We need to get home. The football game's almost on. But anyway, um, and so I just want you to know, Brian, I was concerned for you. But uh, my dad's like, I just call him. But anyway, we, we were uh, all of the different groups spread out. Uh, wonderful job. And then each of the life stages have been kind of covering it. I think we're about done. We're, are we done? Were we the last ones? So for the month of November, we'll just be normal for those that would like to come out. I appreciate all the harvest partners that have been out during the fall season getting the gospel message out. Uh, we are going to be, on average, being able to put about 12,000 gospel blitz flyers out this year if we continue in the, in the pattern that we're in. So I appreciate each of you participating in that. Well, let's go to Numbers chapter 20, and we'll jump into the preaching this morning. It's what we've come for. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 20 and verse 1, Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now let me make a note. Miriam dies in this verse. Later in this chapter, Aaron dies. And I'm going to submit to you this morning that Moses, in his great sin against God in striking the rock twice in his own way, spiritually dies. So you have a chapter of death. It's a chapter that is quite depressing. It's a chapter that's difficult. And you might be asking at the outset, why on earth would you preach this as the last one? I mean, Moses has been about deliverance. And the answer is, as we'll continue reading, deliverance in our life doesn't always look pleasant. Sometimes God has to deliver us from ourselves. And that is the most difficult thing to be delivered from. We keep reading in verse number 2, And there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Now, again, pause. Can you imagine being the leader of this group? Man, I, I would rather be dead than keep following you. I mean, that's tough. 
This is the group that he's working with. Again, I'm setting context as we read the Word of God because the preaching is going to make sense. But the context is, this is a cantankerous bunch of people. Welcome to modern-day Christianity, right? Verse number 4. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. What they're saying in verse 5 is, I don't even know if God's a good God, because you seem to be following Him, and this is what we're getting. By the way, in chapter 20, we are into the second generation of the Exodus crowd, the under 20 crowd that has grown up. And these are the ones, a new generation, complaining just like their moms and dads did. Be careful, moms and dads. What you do is what your kids learn and they themselves will do. Verse 6, And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water. By the way, if that's not underlined, it should be. The rock gives forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said, oh, oh, did God ever tell him to speak to the people? No. God had told him, speak to the rock. And he said unto them, hear Now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Every parent, by the way, if you have children, (laughs) have likely felt this part of the verse at some point in your life. Disobedient kids, listen up, you little rebels. That's what he says. Moses lifted up his hand with his rod and he smote the rock twice. Had Moses done this before? The answer is yes. He had smote the rock once, and water immediately flowed. Here he strikes it once, like he did before, and nothing happens. And he strikes it again, and in God's mercy and grace, which we sung of this morning, the water flowed, not because of Moses, but because God, who is rich in mercy for our sake, gave them the provision of life that they needed. But Moses has now sinned. The Bible says, And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This, this is the water of Meribah. Well, what does Meribah mean? It means those who strive or have contention with God. Because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and He was sanctified in them. Father, help us this morning as we now turn our attention to a story we know very well. But may we learn a lesson that we should all know intimately. And that is of the sinful nature that lies within us. Father, help us, I pray, this morning to come to this truth and this passage and understand Moses' error, his mistake, his failure is really the same one we make day by day. But help us to see the deliverance he has from it so that we too may live in victory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Moses' life was one of deliverance, we have said throughout these eight messages. We've noted at the outset of our study that Moses was delivered personally so that he, Moses, might publicly deliver Israel. We noted in his personal deliverance that he was, his deliverance was to God's purpose at the burning bush. It was in God's promise, the words that God actually spoke to him of what he would do through him. It was by God's power when we looked at the plagues that God brought. And it was ultimately this personal deliverance through God's 
plan. The plan of God was the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. The blood upon the doorpost, that Passover lamb that was slain so that they, Israel, might go free. Then we noted in the next three messages, and today being the fourth, the public deliverance. Once we have been saved and become children of God, we have been delivered from the life of sinfulness to a life of sainthood. As we sanctify ourselves and walk with God in this personal deliverance, there is a public outreach. There is a public flow that comes from us. There's an impact that we make. His public deliverance for Moses was from genuine problems. Well, what were the first three problems they met when they got out into the wilderness? It's the same problem, the first one that we read of here. There's no water. There's no life-giving source. And God says, don't worry. In this new life you have, I will provide the life you need. He gave them water. From that, it was, what do we eat? I mean, this bread is going to run out. And and often, again, they would complain to God, "I, I wish I could have the garlics, the leeks, and the onions back in Egypt. Really? I mean, I've never had a soup that tasted great with just garlics, leeks, and onions. It doesn't mean they're not good to add to a soup, but I've never had one that that was the only ingredient in the soup. And yet they said, we want those things. Why don't we have those things? And God said, I'll provide you manna. So it's not just the source of life. It was the supply. We noted that the manna is the word of God. And as we live within the promised life, as they were moving to the promised land, they were dependent upon the supply of God to know who he was and to know what he wants. The third was that they met the Amalekites. It's not just the source of life. It's not just the supply that we need, but there's a real struggle. Do you know the Amalekites lasted as a thorn in the flesh of Israel for a thousand years? It wasn't until Queen Esther and Mordecai had Haman in his wicked plot hung upon the gallows that he had made for Mordecai until he was hanged and his 50 sons killed with him that they, the Amalekites, were done away with. They are first met in the Exodus and that shows us the struggle that is ours in the life of a believer because that was their struggle in the promised land. We then noted that grace's priorities was part of his public deliverance. The Ten Commandments could run the world, quite honestly, if everybody lived by them. And they show us the grace of God and the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God of how society should and could run if we would just walk with God. And so Moses gives to them grace's priority. Last time we were preaching, not last week, but two weeks ago, we looked at Aaron and Miriam, two grievous people in the life of Moses. What do we do when Christians hurt us? They were his brother and sister. We didn't take time to study Korah because there's not really any hurts that the world and those rebellious people around us do. It's the people that we love and are closest to. When they hurt us, how do we deal with life? You can be delivered from those hurts. You can be delivered from those harms. Well, this morning and today, I want us to learn that deliverance comes from our greatest peril. This ends the series. This is the last message The greatest threat, may I say, to your spiritual walk with God is you. It's you. You're the problem. And you say, well, man, you're a jerk this morning. (laughs) You started out on fire already. And the answer is, I don't mean to be. I just mean to tell you the truth. I am my own worst enemy. The devil has never made me sin. Well, he's made me sin a lot. You're lying to yourself. What we find in Moses is that Moses, a great man of God, greatly used by God, a leader for the cause of Christ or for the cause of God, as we should be leaders for the cause of Christ. Moses failed and it wasn't anybody's fault but his own. And until we start owning up to our own problem, the own peril that lives within our members, our own sinful carnal flesh, until we come to terms with that, we'll never be victorious and we'll never truly live a life of of deliverance. Each Israelite could make excuses and blame each other. But in reality, each person is responsible for their own lives. So is Moses. They're responsible for their own sins. They're responsible for their own decisions. Even Moses here, one of the godliest leaders to ever walk the face of the earth, was at risk of failure because of weak faith and a sinful flesh. 
The passage that we read this morning is the definitive failure in Moses' life. It cost him entry into the promised land. And it may seem to you that the punishment is greater than the crime. That is until you understand that there is a high cost for leadership. Do you know why America is being judged by God for right now? Because we're the only nation on planet Earth that was ever founded on Christian principles. There comes a high cost with leadership. And Moses is the example. By the way, if an eight-year-old in here that just got saved sins in a certain way, and I sin in the same way, you might look at the eight-year-old and go, well, you didn't know any better. But you would look at me and say, you should know better. That's the situation for Moses. I might make the plea to fathers and husbands in here this morning. Men, the problems in America are because men have stopped being biblical men. We don't understand that what we choose to do impacts so many. And that's what Moses is going to teach us. This is our greatest peril. When we are called by God to lead, you get a lot less leeway in our freedoms to act in our flesh. So notice with me this morning, this man Moses. We begin in our study with our choice to sin, number one. Moses chose to sin, make no mistake. Sin is always our choice. Sin is a conscious choice to leave what God has said and enter into what we feel we ought to do instead. Get that. Sin is missing the mark. That's the word in the New Testament. The original language, it is harmatia. It means the idea of an archer pulling the string on the bow and letting it fly and missing the deer altogether, missing the tree, missing whatever your target is you were set on. You have missed the mark. And the point of sin is God said something, but we did differently. We acted in opposition to what he said. Well, I I feel like it's right. It doesn't matter how you feel. If it goes against the word of God, it is sin. It is wrong. It is letter A, an act of the flesh. Our choice to sin, it always boils down to what I'm choosing to do. Is it an act of faith or is it an act of, of our flesh? The first six verses that we come to here tell us the setting. The setting is that Moses is again in dire straits. This Poor man. I am so glad to pastor at Bluegrass Baptist Church. From the day that we planted it 15 years ago to this present morning, there may have been through the years disagreements here or there. We can't really remember them. But there's never been times where the whole church family says, man, I hate that guy. Moses dealt with that a lot. And he did nothing wrong. They didn't really hate him, by the way. They just hated God. They were upset with God. They didn't agree with God. They didn't want to go the way that God wanted them to go. We find then that the act of flesh that Moses engages in, beginning in verse number 9, when he takes the rod from before the Lord and he and Aaron gather the congregation together, that instead of in that very next statement in verse 10, says he speaks to the rock, he says to them, That's where his act of sin began. James gives us a wonderful picture in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He tells us the pattern of sin. We all likely know it by heart if we've gone to church for any length of time. James says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. There seems to be at this moment in Moses' life, after leaving the door of of the tabernacle and going before the congregation itself, that there seems to be in his heart some dwelling upon what they ought to get. Not what God wanted to give. Here's what they deserve. And the question is that we would ask Moses, who put you in the place of God? God told you exactly what to do. He goes on in that same verse, he says, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth what? Death. Let's rehearse for just a moment. Moses has dealt with a lot in the 40 years of their wandering. They are now preparing to go into the promised land. They are but years, three years removed from them going into the promised land. And as we understand this, there is a a, a process to what Moses has been through. He has dealt with a complaining host 
a conceited sister, a complicit brother in the sins of the people, the cowardly spies, the contentious rebel Korah, and the princes who followed him. And by now, in Numbers chapter 20, he's walking with people who used to be only under the age of 20. They were Gen X or millennials for those of us who are old in here this morning. I understand why he might be a little short with them. There's sometimes at 47, I look at some of our 17-year-olds and say, what don't you get? This is how the world works. Oh, I know how the world works. Pastor, you don't need to waste your time on me. I got it all figured out. I just posted about that. I just tweeted. Do we call Twitter X now? So we've X'd it. I don't know what you do. It'd be great if somebody X'd it completely. But anyway... I know how the world works. And that's what these people are doing to Moses. And he said, I'm done. By the way, be careful your flesh. It rears its head in the worst times. I'm done. I'm not putting up with this anymore. This is garbage. I didn't ask for this. This is all going on in his heart. By the way, that is his own lust and the enticement of it. I'm just going to put them in their place. These youngins need to know what for. I'm going to tell them what for. You're not God. You say, well, pastor, we're supposed to go out and tell everybody how wrong they are. We're supposed to go out and live before the world how right God is. So so often what we do is just focus on, let's go just tell everybody how wrong they are. Listen, if you live right, they'll know what's wrong. The point in this story is if Moses had just gone to the rock, gathered the people and spoken and water came out, they would have realized that all of their lies about God, all of their complaints about God, all of their problems with God were just that, a lie. But they didn't do that. Moses said, I'm going to fix you. I'm going to tell you what for. And the problem was it robbed him, really it robbed God of his glory. Moses, no doubt, is at his wit's end at this point. He was frail, likely frustrated, and in his weakened state, he acted in his flesh. We often do the same. We likely would have done the same thing to these rebellious Israelites. There's two times when God literally says to Moses in private, I'm going to be done with him, I'll start over over with you. And And Moses says to God, no, 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 for your name's sake, don't do that. I think if it was us, we would have been like, that sounds like a great deal. Here that is coming out of him. His flesh is getting the best of him. This is the same Moses who in Egypt and in rage had killed an Egyptian for not doing what he believed was the right way to treat the Hebrews. Here this second generation of complainers is blaming him for all their troubles while he knew he was doing right. And in righteous indignation, he was going to tell them what for and tell them what God was really like. Be careful, friend. Our flesh can even show up in supposedly spiritual conversations. The devil doesn't have to trick us, my friend, into doing too many things that are wrong because our flesh beats him to the punch. And that's our problem. We assume and make excuses that it's everybody else or everything else that's causing this in us. And the truth of the matter is, that's our flesh that dwells within us. It's the fight. That is the greatest peril that any of us face, our own flesh. We must put off those fleshly thoughts. Listen to a combined list of natural fleshly things. I only read to you this morning Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, but I put some other passages in there for you, including Galatians 5 and verse 16, uh, Colossians 3 verses 5 through 7 in your notes. Uh, much of 1 Corinthians is about this. 1 Timothy 1 verses 8 through 11, 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 9, that give us a list of things that should not be in our life, things of our flesh that should not be there, that do entice us and that we engage in. Here's what Paul said to the Ephesians. It's a lengthy passage, but stay with me. The Bible says in verse 17 of chapter 4, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity or the emptiness of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. In other words, this is their condition. They don't even know how far they are from God. Because of the blindness of their heart. 
who, these people, being past feeling, had given themselves over to lasciviousness or license to act in any way they want to. Sounds like modern America. To work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye, ye Christians, ye believers in God, you faithful people who are to be walking with Him, have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That statement there is true, different living. God is different than us. That's what, mean, that's what it means when it says He's holy. Wherefore, or because of this, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For you are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good. But we have a lot of people today that don't know how to work with their hands. We got a lot of thieves. We have conditioned our country to be theft-oriented. Well, I just can't work. Well, you just should work. Come back two Sundays from now and we'll deal with one of the principles of stewardship. The first message is on sweat. Ladies, it will be about glowing for you and perspiration. But the point is, you got to work. Working with his hands that thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Was this true of Moses in our text this morning? No. He was not ministering grace to the hearers. He was saying, I'm going to smack you down and put you in your right place. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, with all the hatred that drives it. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for whose sake, your sake, Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Oh, in Galatians, you would find a list that comes out in the fruits of the Spirit, talks about the things that are, the flesh are manifest in these. And in that list, he would tell us it's adultery and fornication and uncleanness and lasciviousness and idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, Paul says to them there. In Colossians 3, he says the same. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 8, he says, this is the people of this age. They are of this sort. The point is, There is a way our flesh wants to live, and we cannot act in it anymore. The question for the Christian this morning is, are you going to choose to live within that sinfulness, or are you going to choose to live within your Savior, within the life that He lived? Sin is always our choice. It is a choice between light and darkness. It is a choice between right and wrong. It is a a choice between holiness and uncleanness. Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 7, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but what? Unto holiness. That's what God has called you to. Moses himself, after being restored from this instance, and that's the deliverance for Moses, he is restored, would later say to Israel, in both a commanding and confident voice, these words in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, what? Choose life. Why? That both thou and thy seed may live. Do you know why Christian homes fall apart? It's because Christian parents choose to engage in sinful behavior and practices. When I started into the ministry, one of the hesitations that Jessica and I had is I could count over and over again in my mind how many pastors and missionaries, their kids end up being devil kids. Just like the devil. Now, that's not true of every pastor in their family. And thank God for those who are faithful. But it was one of the prayer requests we had when we started into ministry 15 years ago. If God gives us kids, we don't want them to end up like the devil. 
Now, there's reasons for that, but one of the reasons is is probably because the moms and the dads on often occasion would come home and complain about everything under the sun that's going on in the church. One of the things we've tried to always do is not complain about what goes on in the church. First off, it's a great church. There's not much to complain about. But we try not to example before our boys that this is so hard. This is the greatest thing that's ever been, being a Christian. And if you don't believe that, your kids won't either. Sin is our choice to act in the flesh, which means that in that choice there is also an absence of faith, letter B. God had clearly defined for Moses what he should do. Take the rod, go take the congregation, go to the rock and speak to the rock. Pretty simple. It's not too complicated. I put in your notes, obedience is the essence and evidence of faith. Lack of obedience is the absence of faith. God has has stated very clearly what Moses was to do. By the way, God was using each step of the Exodus to mold Israel, but also to model for us the Christian life. That's the the omnipotence of Almighty God and His omniscience. For Israel, it was to mold them into the people they needed to be when they entered the land. For us, it was a model. Every step was a model that we could look to. Paul in 1 Corinthians says that the rock that followed them in the wilderness was Jesus Christ. He was that rock. And so what Moses does here is not a small thing. He is messing up. He's marring the picture of what the Christian life is. When you sin... You do not need to crucify Jesus again. The first time in the Exodus, there was a striking of the rock because Christ must be bruised. Isaiah 53 says, the lamb must be slain. There had to be a striking of the rock first. But from then on, in your Christian life, you don't have to crucify Jesus again. You have to crucify you. All you have to do is come back and talk to him. And through his word, and through his preachers and teachers, and through good disciplers in your life, good mentors in your life, good people of Bible knowledge in your life, God will speak to you. The life-giving source of water will flow. You don't have to crucify him again. God simply states for Moses, verse number 12, Because ye believed me not. There was an absence of faith. In the heart of Moses at this moment, whether it's Moses here or Adam in the garden or Abraham lying about Sarah in his relationship or David's immorality with Bathsheba or his murder of Uriah, sin always is believing our own thoughts over God's clearly defined word. As a pastor, I can tell you this. It always saddens me when someone says, Yeah, I know what the Bible says about this particular moment or this particular situation. But pastor, right now, this just feels right. I have no doubt that Moses said the very same thing. You know what? It just feels right to holler at these people. It feels right to strike there. I know what God said, but it just feels right. May I submit to you, if it's not right, it's never right. If the Bible doesn't say it, If you're going directly opposed to the word of God, you're sinning. You know the insanity of Moses' chiding of those who chode him? It's a word we don't use enough, I think. But his correction of those who were trying to tell him what for is that God would have solved the problem if Moses had just obeyed. Verse 13 gives us the, the giveaway. It's the secret. The Bible tells us in verse number 13, This is the water of Meribah. Who named it? God did. Because the children of Israel strove with the Lord and he was sanctified in them. God knew their heart. God knew what the problem was. Our greatest peril is when we choose to act in the flesh with an absence of faith. That choice leads, number two, to the consequences of sin. Sin always has consequences. There's an old quote about sin and it goes like this. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That is certainly true for Moses here. When he shouted or spoke to the rebels and struck the rock, in that instance, in that sin, in that action, he never knew what it would cost him, but it was going to cost him. 
We tell our boys all the time, every choice you make has a consequence. Now, if it's a good choice, we call them benefits, but they're still just consequences. They're outflows of a choice we make. It is true for every one of us, young or old, in this room this morning. When you choose a course of action, there are going to be consequences, and that's the case here. We start then with the reality of sin. What was the first consequence? What was the most significant consequence? I put it in your notes. It is this, that Moses, a picture of the believer in sin, makes God a mockery before the eyes of mankind. Look what it says in verse number 12. We're going to park in verse 12 for a little bit. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. In other words, there was a necessary separation. There was a picture, there was a a type, there was a holiness that needed to be maintained by Moses. And his sin brought the reality that, well, maybe God really thinks we're terrible, evil, horrible people. And the answer is God loves us. It doesn't negate his justice. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. But the first reality is, if Moses acts this way, if that one who's closest to God acts this way, then I guess we can all act this way. Isn't that what's happening across America today? A nation that used to have morals and ethics, we used to have an objective standard of what was true. Now, everybody just does what they want. I mean, who am I to say that my reality should be your reality? I don't care if you have my reality, but I do care that you know God's reality. It's the objective standard of truth. And when Moses sins in the same fashion as the people, there is no distinction between the holy and the profane. And the problem for us, if we will just understand this, this is the peril that when we choose to sin as believers in Jesus Christ, we are telling the world, why does it even matter? What's the point in trusting Jesus as your Savior? Well, I just can't live perfect. I'm not telling you to live perfect. I'm just reminding you that every time you do choose to sin, every time I choose to sin, what I'm doing is making a mockery of the holiness of God because I'm not living to His standard. God's reason for creating man was so that we would glorify Him. That was His purpose in creating Adam and Eve in the garden. It is still His designed purpose for us, His people today. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20 says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore, or because of that price, the price was the precious atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, glorify God where? In your body, right now, manifest and open, and in your spirit, both of them which are God's. You're to glorify God. And Moses here was not glorifying God, and God tells him that. He said, this is the first reality. This is what you have to have sink into your mind. When I choose to sin, I am setting aside the fact that I am separate and holy and like God. I'd rather just be like the devil. I'd rather be like the world. I'd rather be like my natural fallen man. Revelation 4 and verse 11 says this, Of the New Testament age, saints gathered around the throne, singing in heaven after the rapture, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. And for Thy pleasure, Kyle was created. You should go to your Bible and underline that last phrase, and in the margin, write your name. Do you believe that God created you to please Him? If you don't, you don't understand the Word of God at all. You and I are created with the single goal of pleasing God. And the first and necessary thing that pleases God is that we receive Christ as our Savior and forsake our sinfulness. And what Moses does here is he fails in that. By the way, all of us do. God gets no glory from our sinfulness. Paul asked that famous rhetorical question at the beginning of Romans 6 when he starts to talk about our sanctification. He said, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No! You could write in the margin. God forbid is what he says. God's heart for Moses was that he would be the leader fixed on doing right. 
Instead, he chose to do that which was wrong. Thus, the reality of sin was as much for him as it was earlier in these chapters for Miriam and for Aaron and for Korah. No one's above the law. There's consequences for sin. It's not just in the reality, but second, it's in the recompense for sin. It was a temporal payment. And the temporal payment was death. You're not going into the promised land. You and Aaron will not lead the people into the promised land. Paul said this to the Romans in Romans 6.23. We know it as part of the Romans road. For the wages of sin is what? Death. We always want to focus on the latter half, and it's the better half of the verse, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans 5 and verse 12, when he's still talking about our salvation and justification, he says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. May I say to you this morning, if you have never received Jesus Christ into your life, if you've never prayed and asked Him to save you from your sins, you've never had the reward or the payment for your sin applied to your life. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for your sins. The Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. But the only way that that salvation becomes effective for me is when I realize I'm a sinner and I need His salvation and ask for it in my life. That is the recompense for sin, death. Our race before salvation is separated from God. That is our Reward, our recompense. There is also a reality for those who have trusted Christ. It is that our fellowship dies when we sin. Oh, we can't lose our salvation. A couple Sunday nights ago, I preached on our eternal security. But for us who have been saved, it's not the relationship that dies. It is that our fellowship dies. The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Paul said it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Quench not the Spirit. In other words, do not put out the fire of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, how do you do that? By sinning. By actively engaging in those sins. That is the recompense for sin. And that is what the story teaches us from the walk of Moses, from his life. When you sin, you die. Before it, Miriam has died. After it, Aaron has died. In it, he falls away from God. And there is a death that comes upon him. It leads us, thankfully, to our third and final point this morning, and that is the consolation for sinners. God is loving. He's not cruel. But that love does not replace His justice. It just gives Him the ability to save us. In other words, God does not give up His just nature just because of His loving nature. That's the problem for many of the modern church. God is love. God is love. God is love. He is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That is true. But it doesn't negate His holiness. It doesn't negate His justice. And what we find in the story of Moses is that Moses can take consolation in the fact that I am no different than the lowest guy that's in this congregation. By the way, the pastor is no better than any person that sits in the pew. Boy, that's a great equalizer within the household of faith. It's a great encouragement. Moses is comforted in the fact that his faith in God has brought him freedom and life and liberty and a land. By the way, our faith in Jesus Christ, it brings to us freedom and life and liberty and that life that is eternal. That begins right now. It's not that someday in heaven our eternal life begins. It begins right now, today. What a joy, what a consolation that is, that we have even more than Moses. But for Moses, we find the consolation began in his righteous faith. In the same chapter, look down to verse number 27. And at the beginning of it, you will read a statement that is used 20 times in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, directly assigned to Moses. It says this, and Moses did as the Lord commanded. Do you know what that was his problem earlier? This is his restoration. Moses goes back to doing what he knows he's supposed to do. If God says this, do that. His problem earlier is God said this, and here's what I want to do. 
insert whatever sin you have a problem with. Maybe it's not the one of Moses where you're fed up with people and you want to scream at them. You're so angry you want to strike something. But whatever your sin is, this is what we're saying. If God says it's wrong, say it's wrong. Don't do it. The consolation is a righteous faith. There's great comfort in the heart of the believer when we choose life, as Moses himself would say. His lack of faith in striking the rock is the anomaly in his life, not the norm. May it ever be so in your life. If you're here this morning and you've been taken in a sin, then ask God for forgiveness. Moses sinned, and John the Apostle gives us in his epistle the right way back into restoration that Moses himself followed. 1 John 1 verse 8 says this, And all of this is written to the believer, not to the unbeliever. It's an epistle written, if you were to read verses 5, 6, and 7 of chapter 1, it is an epistle written to those who are walking in the light, not in darkness. So what we're reading here, beginning in verse 8, is how you and I as believers, just like Moses, when we have failed and we have faltered, can be restored and delivered to a life that is glorious. Here's what the Bible says. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Let's pause for a second on that verse. If you're here this morning as a Christian and you say, I don't know any sins. Kyle, you haven't touched my sin this morning. I mean, if you haven't named it, then I don't have to claim it. (laughs) Really? The Holy Spirit of God is the one that convicts, not me. I present the truth. If the Holy Spirit of God convicts you of a sin this morning, then you ought to forsake it. Because the very next verse says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That verse is not a verse on salvation. That is a verse on sanctification. The very next verse, verse 10, goes on to say, If we say that we have not sinned, by the way, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. In other words, be very careful if you walk around saying you're sinless. The point of the message this morning is not to make you feel like a sinner. It's to remind you that the greatest peril in your life is the sin that resides within you. It's your own flesh. Old Solomon of old wrote this in Proverbs 24, For a just man falleth how many times? Seven times. But what does that just man who has fallen do? Riseth up again. That's why I love that old King James, the ETH, the ETH. The just man is going to go through life and he's going to find pitfalls and he's going to fall into them. He doesn't mean to, but he's going to. But that same righteous, just man, when he falls into that pit, is going to determine choice after choice, decision after decision. I'm going to get up. I'm going to come back through the word of God, confess my sins to him, confess my faults before my brethren, and I'm going to move on for the cause of Christ. In the Old Testament, move on for the glory of God, for Jehovah. The end of that verse is a statement. There's no progressive action at the end of that verse. But the wicked shall fall into mischief. They're just going to stay there. It is not that God is okay with our falling, but he is pleased with our confession of sin, and the rising action to serve Him again. There's also great comfort and consolation for the sinner when he takes his first steps of faith, knowing that Jesus Christ is your salvation. It brings us to our final point this morning, and that is His rest. The consolation for the sinner is that we can rest in faith. Here's the epitaph. Here's the... What was written, if you will, on Moses' gravestone, though no one knows where Moses was buried. Here's what God wrote on it, though, in Deuteronomy 34 and in verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. In other words, in the Old Testament, they were not indwelled with the spirit like we New Testament believers are, according to Romans 8. But in the Old Testament, those that were used by God, the spirit of God would come upon and reside upon. And the picture is that Moses is passing and he passes that wisdom of God, the spirit of God, to Joshua. What a testimony that the spirit of God rested upon Moses. It demonstrates his faith. And the children of Israel hearkened unto Joshua him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now notice what God says of this great man. And there arose not a prophet since 
in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, in all the signs and the wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and all that mighty hand, and in all the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of Israel. In other words, this was my faithful servant. The takeaway for you should be this. What you can rest in is this. No sin has to be final. There can be restoration. There can be forgiveness with God. Moses is restored to the point that he's able to go on living, teach and preach and prepare the people to enter the promised land under Joshua's capable leadership. But Moses himself said, I made a mistake, but I still want to be a man of God. In closing this morning, Moses' life was one of deliverance. He was personally delivered so that he could publicly deliver God's people. Maybe you're here this morning, and in your heart, in the secrecy of your own thoughts, you're engaged in a life full of sin. I do not assume that. It was easier in the first service. I tried to look at this empty chair and an empty chair back there. I don't want to look at someone and say, "Ah, I think you're living a life full of sin. I don't know. But maybe you are. And maybe what you need to hear this morning is that you are living in danger. You are living in a place of great peril because you are out of fellowship with God. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ and you are walking in darkness in that sinful behavior today, forsake it. The story of Moses tells us that any of us can sin. And so that we, all of us in here this morning, should pray, God, keep me from that sin. May I be filled with faith and empty of my flesh as opposed to acting in the flesh and absent of faith. Make no mistake, your choices matter. There is a reality and a recompense that comes from choices that are wrong and against God, but there's also those same things for those choices that please God. Oh, that we would be a church family filled with people that want to please our Heavenly Father. Father, help us this morning as we close our thoughts.